Amen. Amen. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. We come to this portion of scripture as Jesus is here on the Mount of Beatitudes and he's giving us these characteristics that we who are citizens of heaven and who are heaven bound, these are our characteristics. This is the way we are to live and we are to act. We can be reminded of all the blesseds, those 12 blesseds. He calls us the salt and light of this earth. And now Jesus pauses to give everyone his view and his insight on the Old Testament. Jesus' popularity had been growing. His teaching and preaching was growing and becoming more and more extravagant, if you would, bigger and bigger crowds following him. And we know that he was not a part of any of the well-known seminaries. He wasn't from any of the well-known schools. He didn't come from the Temple Mount or from Jerusalem. He wasn't a part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. And oftentimes he would rebuke them even publicly. He would speak with a different tone, a different attitude. He would teach differently than that religious crowd. Oftentimes throughout the book of Matthew, we'll see how the people are blown away at his teaching because he's teaching as one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Even his students. Where did Jesus go to pick his students after praying and fasting all night? Did he go to Jerusalem to pick the, to pick the cream of the crop? The best of the classes? No, he went out to the fields. He went to the rural areas where the guys ride in overalls and buy wheat in their mouth. And he picks 12 of those guys to be his disciples. So some were beginning to think that Jesus had come to wipe away the law, wipe away the Old Testament, wipe away the Mosaic law, and now establish a new order and form to be right with God and to erase the old and bring the new. And Jesus wanted the multitudes to know exactly what he thought about the Old Testament. And guess what? For us this morning, he wants us to know exactly what he thinks about the Old Testament as well. That's why he begins in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. It's so important for us to ask, if Jesus had a view on the Old Testament, does my view align with his view? Does your view of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic Law, of the entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, if Jesus had a view, does your view line up with it? And it doesn't matter what some church leaders think, no matter how big their churches are or how large their social media platforms are. It doesn't matter what they think or what they say. Today, sadly, many churches believe that morals are to move around with the culture. Our scientific laws don't work that way. I don't think anybody's questioning the law of gravity yet. I'm sure we'll get there sooner or later, right? But these laws, they stand firm. 
Uh, the Pharisees, they had an improper view of the Old Testament as well. They had an improper view of the law, of the Mosaic law. So why should we be surprised if the vast majority of church today does not view the Old Testament in the way that it should be viewed? I believe it's extremely important that we have proper alignment with Jesus Christ and his view on the law and on the Old Testament. If the word who became flesh and dwelt among us had an opinion on the Old Testament... If the author and finisher of our faith has an opinion on the Old Testament, if the one who died and sacrificed his life for us has a view of the Old Testament, and if the one who will judge all of our life's work has an opinion and a view on the Old Testament, I at least believe it's very important that I believe and think the same way he does. I don't care what other people think or other people are saying. I'm saying, Lord, you're the one that's going to judge my life. What do you think about this? This quote's been coming up for me throughout this month. It's from an old church member, Athanasius of Alexandria. And he says, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. If the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. And believer, this is the mindset that each of us need to have. And all the parents here, this is the mindset that we need to give to our sons and daughters. The world today believes truth is completely relative. It is always forming. It is always changing. It is a moving target. But as we're going to go on to see, the word itself is the truth of our world today. The Bible doesn't just possess some truth. The Bible is not just a good book with a few truths. No, the Bible is truth itself. So verse 17, Jesus begins. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus wants the multitudes to know he did not come to do away with the Old Testament. He did not come to do away with the Mosaic law, but he came to accomplish it. The scribes and the Pharisees had misinterpreted and incorrectly taught the word of God throughout Israel's lifespan. And now Jesus comes to give them the proper interpretation and to teach it in a way that people had never seen before. David Brown, he says, Christ came not to annul the Old Testament, but to establish the law and the prophets, to unfold them, to embody them in living form, and to enshrine them in reverence, affection, and character of men. This is why Christ has come. Charles Spurgeon, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ has embodied all its commands in his own life, in his own person, there was a nature which was perfectly conformed to the law of God. And as, his, and as was his nature, such was his life. There's always a difficulty, at least for me, to have a teacher or a coach that's telling me, do as I say, but not as I do. Am I the only one here that has problems with that? In middle school and high school, it was always strange for me to have a PE coach telling me to run miles when they couldn't run a lap. I would always be there scratching my head, chasing me on the golf cart, making sure I'm going fast enough, right? It never did quite make sense. And for these Pharisees, for these Sadducees, they were putting laws on top of God's people that were impossible to fulfill when they themselves were not doing so. The thing is that none of us have been perfect to the law of God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, this verse is incredible because it's saying each and every one of us have gone astray. Each and every one of us have sinned. Each and every one of us have iniquity and guilt and wickedness and shame. And instead of laying it all on top of us, God has sent his only begotten son, the only one who has ever lived a perfect life, to take our guilt and our wickedness, lays it upon Jesus Christ, and now the perfect person and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ is spent for my sin and for your sin. 
That's why Romans chapter 10 verse 4 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we put our faith in the grace of God alone, by Jesus Christ alone, we don't have to go to the law to be righteous anymore. David Guzik says, Jesus added nothing to the law except one thing that no man had ever added to the law. Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And he takes that perfect obedience not to snuff his nose down at us, not to be stuck up, but to sacrifice his life for us. The Old Testament law can be split up into three different categories. And it's important for us as students of the Bible and as Christians to realize this. Because one of the arguments today in order to throw out certain of the Ten Commandments, in order to throw out the sexual laws, is to say, hey, you want to hold me according to the sexual laws, but I don't see you with the little tassels, I don't see you with the curly sideburns, I see you eating pork, what gives? That's why it's important to know three categories of the law. First and foremost was the moral law, how God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And our nation and our nation's laws are really built on these Ten Commandments. And God would have it fit that within the New Testament, nine out of the Ten Commandments are given to us. The only one that's missing from the New Testament is keeping of the Sabbath. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That we weren't made to be bogged down by the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for us. So now our Sabbath is going to Jesus and spending time with him and resting in him. The next law was the ceremonial law. That's the cleansing, the feasts, and the sacrifices. That's why us today, when somebody gets some spit on us because they were speaking a little bit loudly, right? We don't have to cleanse ourselves and go outside of Miami and wait in the Everglades a week before we can come back inside of the city walls. We are free from the ceremonial laws, from the feast, from the sacrificial system. Hey, if you want to celebrate the feast, that's between you and the Lord, but it's not a requirement for us anymore. And then finally was the civil law, that as God took this family, Jacob's family, Israel's family, these 12 brothers, he takes them, their lives, their family, they go into, they go into Egypt, they become slaves in Egypt, and then they multiply in Egypt. God takes them from slaves in Egypt, and then in the wilderness, he creates and makes them a nation. So he gives Moses their civil laws. And within their civil laws, they had cities of refuge, where if someone committed manslaughter, they were able to run to the city of refuge and wait there instead of someone just avenging the death of their loved one. The civil laws also gave the death penalty for a lot of things, way more than we have. I don't know how many of us would have made it past our childhood according to the civil laws of Israel. Because if a kid disrespected his parents or disobeyed his parents, the parent would drag him out to the middle of the city and that's it, right? All the kids were obedient back then. So that's why these civil laws, if you weren't obedient, you didn't make it. The civil laws and ceremonial laws are different than the moral laws. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus repeats the Ten Commandments. Paul repeats the Ten Commandments. And both Jesus and the whole New Testament takes the Ten Commandments and then raises up the ante and makes it even more difficult for us. Because the only way we can obey God's law is to have a heart transplant. It's the only way we can do it. The Lord takes our sinful nature and gives us his own nature. He gives us his own spirit. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees saw the law of God as a ladder to get up to heaven. They saw the law of God to help them feel more righteous about themselves. And they would look down at other disgusting sinners thinking that they weren't like them. And they would also take the law of God in order to allow themselves to parade themselves higher than the other people. Jesus says, you love the seats of honor. That that's what the Pharisees truly liked. But here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, God gives us the true reason and the point why God gave us the law and even the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us, 
Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Perhaps your Bible has that word tutor as schoolmaster. And that's what God's law was. It was meant to bring us to Jesus Christ. That's why right after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the next thing he gives Moses is the sacrificial system. God knew that no man could just keep ten laws, so that's why they needed sacrifice in order to cover their sins. That word tutor in the Greek was a slave hired by the parents who would take the children to school, and if the children didn't want to go to school, at times the slave was allowed to whip the children to get them to attend and go to school. I'm not giving you parental advice. That's what the slaves did back in, in Grecian times. And that's what the law was for us. The law was to reveal to us, I can't do this in my own strength. I can't keep these Ten Commandments. And it drives us to the person of Jesus Christ so that we by faith can be justified. We can be just as if we never sinned. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. There, there's not a set of scales where we're trying to outweigh all of our bad deeds and trying to outweigh our past. No, we come to Christ. He takes away our sinful nature. He makes us a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He puts in us a new heart, and he puts his spirit and power within us so that we can actually begin to obey his law and obey his word. That's why Jesus, he's the main character, not only of the Bible, but of all of humanity. It's why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us, Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without blood being shed, there's no remission for our sins. And this is why Jesus, at the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, verse 28, he says, This my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It all points back to Jesus. He was our perfect sacrifice. He didn't come to annul the Old Testament. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill it so that we can come to him by faith and we could trade our sin and our wickedness and our guilt. And he says, hey, have my righteousness and gain access to heaven. Gain access to the friendship and relationship with me. Back to Matthew 5, verse 18. He continues and he says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Here we see the authority of Jesus Christ. Prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, right? In King James Version, that's how all prophets speak. No, they would say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. But now Jesus being God, Jesus being the word made flesh, he says, I say to you, I'm telling you, the word of God and my words are on the same level of authority. And he says, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot and the tittle were the smallest markings in Hebrew writings. We could think of them as an apostrophe, as a comma, or as a slash on some of our letters. And yet they would completely change words or meanings to the text. Take yourself back to pre-K, right? And if you write a lowercase l and you put a slash on it, does it stay the same? It becomes a whole new letter. Things completely change. It's like when you send someone the wrong emoji. You're going to send someone a crying emoji and send them a laughing emoji, right? You're laughing that I lost my job. What's wrong with you, right? These small markings, they could change the context of everything going on. And here Jesus is saying, not the smallest dot on the eye and not the smallest 
cross on the T shall be erased till all things come to pass. Jesus is here speaking about how important the word of God is. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, family, does your view of Scripture align with Jesus' view of Scripture? Does your view of the Bible align with God's view of the Bible? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us all Scripture... That word in the Greek, all, what does it mean? It means all. It means everything. All of it is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some translations put it this way, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God that caused these writers to put these words down to paper. John chapter 10 verse 35 tells us, To whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. There's so much power within the word of God. God's word has had enemies for centuries. For millennia, God's word has had enemies. And guess what? Those enemies have come and gone and withered away. But what's still here? The Word of God. And today, God's Word has many enemies. Perhaps you're here and you're an enemy of the Word of God. You don't believe it all. You think certain parts don't belong there. And you will come and you will die and you will fade away and God's Word will still remain. Jesus is not only saying that the Bible is inspired by God, but that it is immutable. God's word is impossible to change. It does not move. It does not ebb and flow depending on the culture. The Bible is truth itself. The Bible does not contain some truth. The Bible doesn't just contain a lot of truth. It's not Aesop's fables and the Bible. It's not the sayings of my mom and dad, these Cuban sayings and, and, right, and the Bible. No, Bible is the truth of God. And God, he's breathed it out to us. Not only book by book, or chapter by chapter, or line by line, but, or word by word. But here Jesus saying letter by letter and punctuation by punctuation. That's how I've given you this word. We have to be careful. So many of us, we trust that God holds our future. He holds our salvation. He holds heaven itself. And yet we allow people to put fear in our minds, thinking that there's certain parts of the Bible that don't really belong there. There are certain parts of the Bible that you need a code. If you get the right decoder ring, then you'll really be able to understand God's word. Hey, the Bible's good, but if you get the Da Vinci code, then you'll really be able to understand what the Bible says. Hey, the Bible, they wrote it, but then these evil guys, they started changing letters, and now you're praying to the wrong God. How can we have so much faith that God is going to hold heaven and hell separate for us, and yet we have no faith that God's able to protect and keep his own word? It's preposterous. We need to trust in God and trust in his word. So Jesus finishes this verse by saying, it will by no means pass from the law. It will not change till all is fulfilled. Now we could spend a whole teaching on when was it fulfilled, but we'll just go through this quickly. When was it all fulfilled? It was all fulfilled through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law by living it perfectly. And Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system by being the only completely perfect sacrifice. And now in Romans chapter 8 verse 3. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. If you're really quick, you can turn there. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. We find out that it's even fulfilled in us and in our lives. Romans chapter 8. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
If we accept the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross, his perfect life, his sacrifice, we accept it and now we're walking in the spirit, the law is fulfilled in our lives because Jesus fulfilled it. And when Jesus fulfilled the law, he fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, the prophet here says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes that you will keep my judgments and do them. In and of our own strength, we got no chance at the Ten Commandments. We have no chance. But if we come to Christ saying, I am nothing and I need you, he takes our heart of stone, our heart that's filled with thorns, and he gives us a new heart. He takes our spirit and he puts a new spirit within us so that we can obey his word. That's the danger with a lot of the false gospels today. Jesus is not just another self-help guru. Jesus is not here just to work on your outward actions. It's not, oh, you got to stop these outward actions. you got to start these better habits. It starts in our heart. It's not an outward to inward transformation. It's from the inward outward. That's the type of transformation and only transformation that can come from Christ, which is how he can command us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Once we've been saved, he's given us the power to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This relationship with God on this side of heaven is likened to a wrestler. It's likened to an endurance runner. It's likened to a soldier. Is our relationship with Jesus looking like that? It's not likened to a hammock on the beach. It's not likened to a pina colada in your hand floating down the lazy river. It's a battle. It's a war. And are we in this battle? Are we disciplining our lives after we've been saved to look more and more like Jesus Christ? Verse 19, Matthew chapter 5. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. Charles Spurgeon, he says, It is vain to teach the commandments without first doing them. The doing must always precede the teaching. If a man's example cannot be safely followed, it will be unsafe to trust his words. I think of Paul, how Paul says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Friend, if everyone here at church lived and acted exactly as you did, what would the church look like? If everyone followed your example, not your words, if everyone followed your example, what would the church look like? Hopefully we're not that coach that's telling people to do something when we've never done it and we can't do it ourselves. And what a quote for us as parents here. Charles Spurgeon, it is vain to teach the commandments without first doing them. Parents, be careful that you're not telling your kids to be spiritual and holy and you're living a completely unspiritual and unholy life. It's not going to work. They're going to see it. Same goes for husbands and wives. We need to live out the word of God and then we can teach and help others live out the word of God as well. We are to obey and teach the law as Jesus Christ did, leading by example, not as the Pharisees did. Christ fulfilled the laws of sacrifice and the ceremonial laws for us. And then he raises the bar on all of the moral laws. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked a question. And in his answer, truly he raises up the standard for us and our lives with the Ten Commandments. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Someone asked Jesus saying, Teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he takes ten commandments. He takes the nine commandments was in the New Testament. And he gives us just two. How are we doing with these two, right? To love my neighbor as myself. To do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And how are we doing with loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind? Does our obedience... And teaching of God and his word. Does it honor and exalt God and his word? Or does our lifestyle and the way we teach God's word, does it corrupt and despise God and his word? Because we will be held accountable for it. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Does our lifestyle and our teaching of the word of God, does it honor and exalt God? Or are we instead trying to corrupt God and corrupt his word? Are we despising him, despising his word and telling people it's not really that big of a deal? We will be held depending on how we're living it. Romans 7 verse 12 tells us the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Jesus didn't come to just destroy and erase the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, live it and give us the power to do so as well. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In this day and age, very few people could read Hebrew and very few people could afford their own scrolls. So the Pharisees would just tell the people. It would be through oral tradition how they would receive the law and the word of God. So in a very similar way, Jesus tells them, For I say to you, and I encourage you this afternoon, take advantage of having the word of God in front of you. Not everyone on this planet has this privilege. We have different Bible versions in our house. We have different Bibles for different occasions. We have different covers, different leathers. Take advantage of having the word of God and study it for yourself. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I got to think this is one of those moments where the 12 disciples are, after they hear him, they're left like scratching their head thinking, all right, we're out. There's no, we got no chance. We got, we got no chance to make this. Everyone knew that the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous of the righteous. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells us that the, the scribes and Pharisees would tithe out of their spices, out of their own gardens. They would go to their garden and what they collected, they would tithe 10% of it. Imagine you go home right now and you take out your paprika, right? You bring out a scale and you measure it out. You take 10% of it and you come to Carlos next Sunday. Carlos, here's 10% of my paprika. Here's 10% of my sazón completa. Here's 10% of my... Here's 10%. This is the level of righteousness that the Pharisees would live by. God's word would tell them to never eat of an animal that did not have its blood drained out. So if a Pharisee, I mean they weren't riding bike in this day and age, but if a Pharisee swallowed a gnat or swallowed a mosquito, swallowed a bug because it had not had the blood drained out, they would make themselves gag and throw up so that they wouldn't swallow an animal that did not have the blood drained. The Pharisees took the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial laws and expanded them to the point of 613 laws and rules and regulations to be followed. You couldn't work on the Sabbath, so if you got a cut or a gash on the Sabbath, the only thing you could do is stop the bleeding. You'd have to wait till the next day to begin to deal with the wound. No one could live a life more righteous than the scribes or the Pharisees. That's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why we need him. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our very best righteousness, the very best righteousness that we can bring up and muster up in our own strength is like filthy rags in God's view and in God's perspective. Filthy rags is not talking about dish rags. 
It's not talking about paint rags. It's not talking about rags cleaning the oil, changing the oil. Filthy rags here is menstrual rags. It's the grossest of the grossed. That's our very best. The very best we can muster is gross in view of God. That's why God has offered his righteousness for us. All we have to do is humble ourselves and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's why Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 tells us, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If our righteousness comes by our obedience to the law, the death of Christ was all in vain. David Guzik, he tells us that the law sends us to Jesus to be justified because it shows our inability to please God in ourselves. But after we come to Jesus, he sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct and sanctification. The other meaning here of Jesus saying that our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees is because they just were paying attention to an outward righteousness. All they cared about was an outward righteousness. And what the righteousness that Jesus is looking for is the righteousness within our heart. What does the righteousness of your heart look like? Each of us are guilty of this. One number, right? 55. 55. You're driving on the highway and the speed limit says 55. How are you doing? How are you doing? We read 55. I know nobody here. You see that at 65. Whatever the number is, for whatever reason, your brain computes and adds 10 to it automatically. Why is that? And then as we're driving home, another police officer is driving home, and then what happens to all the traffic? Right, starts slowing down. And now everybody's going 54 instead of 65 or 55. And then what do you start praying? Man, can this guy, like, get off the exit here? Can this guy move on? Like, you guys are laughing because you prayed this prayer too, right? And the moment the officer gets off, what happens to all the traffic? Magically, just speeds right up, right? Everybody starts, everybody starts praising the Lord in their cars and everybody starts speeding up. Our righteousness, our heart is always just concerned about outward righteousness. That's why we need that transformation. That's why it's so difficult what God is looking for and it can only happen in and through Jesus Christ. Each of us have been there. We're supposed to be working on something at the house and you're there relaxing and you hear the door opening, your spouse opening the door and you just get up, right? You find something and you start acting like you're working. It happens because the righteousness we're worried about is not our heart. The righteousness we're worried about is what do people think about us? So now Jesus is going to begin to give the true meaning of the law. And he's going to give us the true meaning, the true reason of the law by giving illustrations and applications to the principles he laid out for them versus the bad interpretation and the bad teaching that people had received from the scribes and Pharisees. We could put it this way. How many of you have played the family-destroying game of Monopoly? Anybody play Monopoly here? Right? Many of us. How many of you have actually read through every rule of Monopoly? It's a whole different group of people. Unless you had an bro- older brother like me, we were like lawyers in Monopoly law, right? We, we read through it all and figured it all out. Every home has different house rules. Every home has different interpretations. Every home has different principles and applications. And what Jesus is saying, put aside all the house rules you've heard I'm going to explain to you what the Word of God actually means. And it's always directed at our heart. It's always focused on our heart. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You shall not murder is the proper translation here. Some Bible translations have, you shall not kill. And ever since then, Christians have been worried about killing mosquitoes and cockroaches in their houses, right? Am I breaking God's law here? Not at all. The God of the Bible commanded the nation of Israel... And many godly men 
to go to war and to wipe out many sinful nations and sinful peoples. David was a man after God's own heart and was a very skilled soldier. God wants us to protect life, and sometimes the only way you can protect life is by stopping the life that's trying to destroy the life of someone else. Even for our world today, murder is a sin. Yet in our nation, it seems like it's fine. It's fine and dandy. It's a right to murder an unborn baby. Again, it's not biblical. It's not right in the eyes of God. The problem is that the Pharisees taught as long as you don't cross the line of murder, you can do whatever you want and you can believe whatever you want in your heart. The Pharisees, again, like so many of us today, believe that God only cares about our outward actions. And instead, Jesus asks us, hey, have you ever been angry with someone? Has anyone here ever been angry before? A couple of us, we just don't want to lie, so we're being honest. Yeah, I've been angry before. Some of us were angry that we're asking if I've ever been angry before, right? (laughs) Each of us that have been angry, we've committed murder in our heart. That's what God's word is telling us today. God is looking at our heart. If we've ever been angry with someone, we have committed murder in the eyes of God. William Barclay, he tells us, Jesus forbids forever the anger that broods. The anger which will not forget. The anger which refuses to be pacified. And the anger which seeks revenge. If we've allowed that anger to just continue to boil and fester into our hearts and minds. And we allow it to go out into a blind rage. That anger which we decide to no longer have self-control. That anger which we react to putting holes in walls or throwing things across the room. That anger which causes our loved ones to be afraid and flinch. We have sinned against God because our heart is not lined up with His. If we've ever done that to our spouse, if we've ever done that to a loved one, we need to repent before God and before them. And Jesus, He's not just saying this type of anger, but if we've kept our composure, but inwardly we're boiling over, Inwardly, we're cooking and our anger and our rage is just stewing over our hearts and minds. We've still sinned against God because our heart is not lined up with His. That's why it's all over 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, it tells us, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him finally first john chapter 4 verse 20 if someone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love god whom he has not seen Again, family, God is concerned with our inner heart. And if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We've been given a new heart, a new life, a new attitude, a new spirit within us. He is looking at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God has to almost rebuke Samuel. Samuel's an incredible man within Scripture. But God almost has to rebuke him. God tells Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How's your heart doing this morning, this afternoon? How's your heart been this past week? Is it desiring God? Are you loving the Lord your God with all of your heart? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself within your own heart? Or is your heart steaming and simmering in anger and hatred? There's that famous quote, The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Our sins outwardly are all represented by what's going on in our heart. Perhaps it's a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of trust in God. Perhaps you love something else more or someone's touching your idols. And now what's going on in your heart overflows into your actions and how you respond. That's why it's so important for us to allow God to deal with our hearts. So that we're righteous before Him inwardly and outwardly. 
That's why in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, the psalmist tells us, You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And if you're brokenhearted over your sin, you're going to have a longer wick when it comes to your anger and your temper. The more you're broken over your own sin, the more you see the size of your own sin, the more humble and the more patient you're going to be with others. There Jesus says, if you've ever said raka against your brother, and some of us say, yes, I got one, right? I've never seen that word before. I've never said that word before, right? That word raka, it means empty head, nitwit. <laughs> some of us are laughing. We're done already, right? Blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, brainless idiot. If we've ever said that to our brother, to our spouse, to our children, right? To our coworkers, we're in sin. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The standard of Christ and yet the power we have with this new heart and with this new spirit to be able to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ more and more every day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Look at verse 25 through 32. He tells us, Therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Let, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Again, family, if you're saved here this morning, if you are heaven bound, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We can't keep our hang-ups of how we've been raised or where we are from or our culture or our ethnicity as a reason for our sins. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We can't say, hey, I'm doing this because this is what my dad always does. I'm doing this because I'm a Cuban. I'm doing this because of X, Y, or Z. You are a new creation. Your citizenship is in heaven. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Let him work hard. Don't be lying. You're a new creation. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In calling someone a blockhead or a nimwit, right? There's no edification there. There's no grace to the hearers. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So many of those things in verse 31, they're just going on in our heart. Sometimes they're shown outwardly, but so often they're just going on in our heart. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Seven times 77, right? We need to forgive others as God and Christ has forgiven us. Put away all this evil speaking. One last scripture, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. It tells us, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your law is in my heart. This is what Christ has done for us. He came and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. And now if we come to him, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He's taken our heart of thorns and stone and anger and bitterness, and he's given us a new heart that we can say like Jesus Christ, Lord, I delight to do your will. Church used to be boring. Church used to be obnoxious for me. I couldn't stand Christians before. But now I come here and I'm excited. 
I come here and I want to be here Sunday and Monday and Wednesday and Friday and Saturday, right? For so many of us, that's our testimony. And now his word is literally written within our hearts. This is the power of Jesus Christ. So family, Old Testament and you, it is the very breath of God. And in and of our own strength, there's no way we can do it. There's no way we can be obedient to it. But God's offering you today, hey, you want to make a trade? You want to make a trade? You want to humble yourself and accept me, accept my gift, accept my sacrifice? I'll take your guilt, your wretchedness, your sin, and I'll give you my righteousness and perfection and access to heaven. Again, it's an incredible, incredible trade for us. So if the worship team can come up, pastors can get ready, let's all stand, and we'll close in worship. Hey, if you need prayer, the pastors are up front. Maybe you've realized you've been trying to rationalize certain scriptures, trying to tell people, hey, these verses aren't really as important as this. Hey, I know the Bible says this, but our culture is different, so this really is sin no more. Maybe the Lord's convicted you. Maybe you haven't been that good example to your family, to your spouse, to your children. I encourage you, repent before the Lord. Get right before Him and get right with your family and be able to live a life without any guilt and without any shame. And if you're here this morning and perhaps the enemy is just pouring on the guilt and shame on you, you've committed sin that the devil's telling you you'll never be forgiven. No one will ever be able to look at you the same way. No Christ, he's forgiven you. He forgives murderers. He forgives adulterers. The very worst of the worst in our morality, he's forgiven all of them. We just have to humble ourselves and come to him. So, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for the gift of salvation, Lord. We thank you that you've forgiven a wretch like me, Lord. Help us, Lord. Protect us from the heart of the Pharisee, Lord, where we think we're better than someone else, Lord, that we're more holy than someone else, that, Lord, we're more able to humble ourselves and come to you than that family member or that coworker or friend. Lord, help us to always rely on you, Lord. Help us to rely on your word and what your word says about us and who we are in you. Lord, help each of us to be that new creation, Lord, not holding on to what's behind us, but pressing forward for the goal, for the upward prize in you, God. Lord, we just thank you, Lord. We pray that you, Spirit, would be moving in our hearts. That, Lord, if perhaps any of us, we need to come up front and say, I want to be that living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that we'd come up front. We'd just be obedient to you and what your Spirit's asking of us. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.